All right. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have two very special guests. Uh, we have our friend James Shaknovich and James Moreno. Uh, James Shaknovich is a senior of Baruch College and he works with Dynamite Youth Center, an addiction treatment center. And James Moreno is part of a recovery-based music group called Oceanside. The center works to help uh, ad uh, dependent adolescents and young adults create a positive change in their lives through a comprehensive system of care. I want to welcome the both of you to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you guys so much for coming on. So, I mean, obviously the most important question is going to be, what is the point of this program? Like, how did you pretty much get in touch with it? And like, what is its mission? What is sort of its founding mission? How do they kind of, uh, I guess, sort of how do they find or how do people come to them? And what is sort of their purpose? How do they help them? So, like Alan said, Dynamite Youth Center is a young adult, adolescent, long-term rehabilitation program. Um, the intake is located in Brooklyn, New York on Avenue O in Coney Island. Uh, the phone number is 718-376-7923. Mm. And um, the, the process starts by you have a opening interview. Uh, usually people come in who are struggling with drugs, either, you know, a million and one things can bring people uh, uh, to us, whether, you know, your family's kicked you out or you're realizing on your own that I have a big problem with drugs and I can't handle it anymore. Um, we do the intake interview. And then if the member is a good candidate, then we do all the paperwork and all the stuff. And then they are sent upstate to our lovely hundred acre facility where they can spend up to 12 months, as long as the person needs to get themselves together. Yeah. While they're there, there's a lot of, uh, I believe it's called like cognitive based therapy where the, well, first of all, most importantly, it gets the person away from the drugs and the people they were doing drugs with and right. all of those other triggers. You know, people always say people, places, things. Um, and we're in Fallsburg, we're in the middle of almost nowhere. It's just woods and our facility and that's it. Um, and uh, it's a therapeutic community. So people, we live there, uh, we work there, we do group-based therapies there, we relax there, it's, it's great. Um, after the upstate portion, if a member wants to continue, there's a outpatient portion, which continues in Brooklyn. Um, and that can go on again for up to a year if the, if the member wishes to continue. Uh, where it's like a steps-based program where in the beginning you're attending the center five days a week and you hang out on the weekends with your fellow peers and every day you know you're kind of back in your life at this point and slowly but surely you go you go to your life and you come in you talk about what happened you know how did you feel going home how did you feel about this phone call like whatever you need to talk about your friends and peers who you've already experienced a year of upstate life with are there for you to discuss. And then the last, last step of the program, um, this is already, at this point, you've already started working. Um, it's basically just come in once a week, just like check in. Um, so the whole program can potentially be three years if a person chooses to stick it out for that long. Yeah, and what does it mean to be a good candidate? Um, usually we take a high, high opiate user um, I, I believe, uh, we have the stats written down, like 80% of the people who walk in through the door are heroin users or opiate users. 30% uh, of them are like stimulants or uh, benzos like Xanax or cocaine. Um, like they don't take people who are just like smoking weed on the weekends. You know, mm -hmm. this is a high intensity drug program. Yeah, and then so what would happen? Okay, so would there be somebody who would, let's say, be um, underqualified, but yet still highly addictive? What do you mean? So let's say somebody who's like really addicted to somebody but wouldn't qualify for the program. Would there anything disqualify them? No, right? 
No, because if somebody's highly addicted, that's when we take them. You know, okay. I'm not talking about a person who's like smoking weed on the weekends and keeps their job and you know that kind of yeah, stuff. No, no, no. See, so I'm just wondering. So in terms of like the actual like, oh, so let's say somebody really is addictive, right? Could there be anything outside of that, like outside of the actual, the, I guess, content level of addiction that could disqualify them? So if there's extreme, extreme mental health, okay. like extreme, um, the facility is not equipped for that. And um, that's basically about it. Oh, uh, the age range is also, we service ages 16 to 25. Okay. Right. So, because, you know, if you have a 16 year old sitting in group with a 60 year old guy, they're not gonna be able to relate on anything. They're not gonna be a good peer for each other. The point is that we're all like close in age together. Like James, who went through the program with me, he's almost my age. He's going through the same things as me. We talk about girls and careers and all that daily stuff that everybody talks about. I can confide in him because I've gained trust in him because of our experiences together. Yeah, and um, those uh, probably as far as qualifications go, you know, just to like add on there, uh, probably the intake coordinator or one or the counselor sort of determine like if somebody's qualified, if they think somebody, you know, is extreme mental health sort of situation, maybe, maybe they'll decide based on how they, you know, how they see fit, if they should go somewhere else. But in general, yeah, if somebody's like highly addicted, um, experiencing physical, uh, mental uh, addiction, or even going, you know, could potentially go through withdrawals. I'm sure they'll admit people like that, right? Absolutely. We have a doctor on staff upstate. So if the person needs some kind of medication to be distributed, the medication gets distributed. Um, it's great. And the, the an amazing thing is actually, I remember Leon, you and I were speaking, um, the there's, you were telling me that there's a trouble finding a program that it's cost efficient. Right. So dynamite turns nobody away if they cannot pay. It has never been happened in the history. Um, there's like they 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 talk. Uh, they'll say like it's a sliding scale. Um, we meet you where you are, but ultimately the members are put onto state-funded programs like welfare and social security benefits and uh, Medicaid, and that all pays for the program. Um, a beautiful thing about the program too is that it's it's family oriented. Like we we try to use the whole family together to help the individual who's suffering because it is a family disease. And um, at the same time that the member is attending the program, his family can attend the program once a week where they can meet fellow parents or uncles or aunts or whatever who are struggling through the same things. Like, what did you do when your son was like high in the room? What would you do? Or I wanted to kick him out, but I didn't have the heart. Like, what did you do? Like they have, they, they struggle too, you know? And going into the program, right? So just see what the actual the contents of it and what it's comprised of. So what do you mean by that? What do you mean by addiction as a family disease? So I know for me, so I, I missed my introduction a little bit. I'm in recovery. I'm going to have four years next month, which is such, such a, so Congrats, amazing. Man. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, like everybody around me suffered too. Like, you know, when I was out there, when I was doing heroin, like I was trying to borrow slash steal from all my friends I was trying to borrow slash steal from all my family, the nonstop lies, the, you know, if you, for the family members, for the parents, if your child is killing themselves and you're watching them kill themselves and you don't know what to do, it's, you know, that's, that's so debilitating. That could like take years of therapy to undo. Um, so that's why it's a family disease. It spreads. It's not just the person who's using, who's affected. It's everybody around them. Like nobody wanted to deal with me anymore. <laughs> So I, I kind of I have a personal sort of situation where um, I had somebody close to me who was very addicted, well, actually a few people. But yeah, it was a sort of a family situation. And it's like, no matter what you did to sort of explain to them, 
you know, what you see them doing to themselves or what they can do to change all of that. It's like it doesn't click or the messages don't hit or if they hit, it hits for just a five seconds, let's say, you know, and then they just kind of sink back into it. And then like being in that position of that family member who's like seeing them constantly fall into it, but you love them. You don't want them to, you know, uh, kill themselves. But at the same time, you're also really pissed at them and you're like trying to balance these these things you know so i mean i wish i wish i knew about uh dynamite and i'm not even just saying this like i know we're having you on we're talking about dynamite and all that but actually the person i knew we ended up sending them to uh israel and they ended up spending a crazy amount of money every single month uh, to be there and it was not even successful uh for them and if i knew about dynamite or if we knew about dynamite uh that could have been different. That would have been more cost effective. Maybe that would have helped that person more, you know? Yeah. Well, that, that's what I could say is probably the beautiful thing about dynamite is the way it's structured, um, taking people off the streets, putting them in an upstate facility, having them go inpatient for about a year or so, and then having them then do the outpatient part of the program where they go home every day, they see their family, uh, while keeping the program very heavily uh, family orientated. You know, because like James is saying, it's it's a family type disease that you deal with, uh, whether it's, you know, doing wrong to your own friends or family and and they have their own pain and their own suffering that then they have to deal with, uh, you know. So I, I really like Dynamite doing that because it was very helpful um, coming from the upstate facility into the Brooklyn. So it, it was really helpful. Yeah. And it sounds like for both of you, it's, it was very helpful for both of you. Like, do do either of you want to maybe go into like your experience with the program, what it was like, I guess, maybe getting there um, and kind of what it did for you? I could say for me, uh, I did, I didn't exactly know what I was getting myself into going to dynamite. Uh, I didn't understand it was a therapeutic community. I didn't understand that it was a, uh, longer program than your regular 30 day. Um, so when I went in, I also, I took a lot of it as a joke. I, I wasn't really ready to get clean, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. I still felt like, you know, there was a part of me that wanted to go out there and still get high and, and do all the stuff that I was doing, you know? Uh, and then eventually you go through the program, you buy in and then you start changing, you know, you change your appearance, the way you talk, uh, your correlation to things, you know? But uh, coming into the program, I, I didn't think, I mean, years later, if, if I could say that, you know, I am the person I am today, and I probably would not believe it. I didn't truly believe I could ever get off drugs. I always thought that, you know, these were things that I would always, whether it's having a drink at night, I, I never thought that I would uh, be this clean and sober and decently happy. You know what I mean? I, that didn't really, I, I could never see that coming into the program and and was it like uh maybe like uh is it the i mean i'm sure it's more than just this but was it the talking to other people who had the same issue was it like that they had like uh certain programs there that sort of kind of brought you into a different way of thinking um or is it just like because of the time you had to be there to not be near any like influences Mm -hmm. then you started to be able to like free up like uh let's say like this like mental resources so this way you could sort of start to kind of go a different way or i think the time is really really such a key factor because 
like I also I now attend NA and AA meetings and I give them so much credit for sobering up like in basically in their homes you know like if I didn't have that time away like I don't think I would have ever gone sober because I tried I tried so many times on my own I would like write myself notes I would ask my friends for help like yo just watch me don't let me do it but like you know that would last for two three days and then I would make a lie, get some money and go, go get what I needed to get. Um, so that is a huge component. And then there's a lot of uh, talk about that addiction is a, is a, a, a loneliness disease almost that you feel empty inside and you, you try to fill it with all these different things. And plenty of people have this loneliness and some of them fill it with like healthy habits. Like you can go to the gym too much. You can study too much, all that stuff. Um, we chose to do this crazy self-destructive uh, habit of drugs. And uh, the thing that dynamite does is it gives you a sort of, not only does it help you feel a sense of purpose, you also have a mm. sense of belonging. Like I have people now that I can talk to about my, like my urges or life or anything that I need to talk about. Like I never have to feel alone again because I have these friends, I have the support network. And on top of it, like we went through so many experiences together, like working to get, like we work on cruise upstate and that gives you a sort of sense of uh, that you can do things, you know, like, which is huge because before I was like, I don't know how to do anything almost, you know, but then it's like, they, they, they let us cook, they let us clean, they let us like paint and fix stuff and like a million and one different things. And that gave me like the sense of that I can, I can learn new things and I can do new things. And then as I'm doing this with my friends, I have these like bonding moments, you know, they're almost like artificial, like looking back, I was like, oh, this is so artificial, but it's so genius. Cause um, I have moments where like work is really hard. Oh my God, I'm so frustrated. And my buddy pops up, he's like, oh, let me help you, man. Boom, 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 everything's done. I'm like, oh man, I appreciate you. And then I go and I sit down with him and I can talk about my feelings or whatever it is that I need to talk about. Um, we also have the groups, there's three groups a week in which, you know, you really dig deep. If like, if you need to discuss something in your past that's traumatizing you, and normally, you know, we had people talking about um, that they were molested or that they saw some kind of grievous like murder or something happening. Yeah. And the person who's feeling those feelings, they think they're alone in this. They're like, oh, nobody can relate to me. Nobody can understand. But I've seen like this magical moment so many times where this one guy is opening up, I got molested by so-and-so. And then another person in the group is like, oh, me too. And I thought I could never tell another human being thank you so much for sharing. It's like those kind of moments always used to amaze me. You know, it's so magical. That's like raw human connection right there where that that extreme loneliness that you're feeling is suddenly like, it, I mean, it takes more time than that one, like, oh, I relate, but it's oh, that's sure. part of the growing process because then you could sit with that person, you could talk and you can discuss how that affects your behaviors today, how that affects your thought processes today. It's so intricate and amazing. But when did addiction begin for you guys? Um, well, I can say for me, it started off probably around the time that I was 17, 18. Uh, I was using, you know, things like oxycodone pills, uh, Xanax, you know, marijuana, alcohol. Um, and, then, and then it progressively got worse for me. Um, and I realized, well, I realized when it got worse, uh, I was part of a band when I was younger that you know we were doing fairly well we were getting interviews i got put on tv i mean it was an amazing feeling and um uh eventually my band members said 
this is it. We're, we're not putting up with you. You know, I was late to everything, shows, interviews, all that. And, um, and then that's when I started realizing like, whoa, I'm getting way over my head right now, you know? Uh, and it was that feeling of defeat, you know? I had something that I worked so hard to do, which is to kind of put together a sort of like musical act because I love music. And uh, it was like my baby, you know, I was, I was finally able to give this to the world, you know? And uh, it kind of got ripped under from under me because of my own actions, you know, because I was suffering in heavy drug addiction. And uh, sometimes I'll look back on interviews of that time and I'll think that, you know, no one else at me at that point, looking back now, it's like, I know that was, that was a younger me. You looked so different back then. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a younger me suffering through addiction, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the question, I guess, in that case would be why, right? Why is it that a person who has so much or who has so much seemingly in front of them, why do that? Well, for me, it was more of a, a self-love type thing. You know, um, there was a lot of things, probably from when, my, when I was younger, through my childhood, not feeling a part of, you know, and those things correlate back to, uh, you know, a lot of times if you're stuck in this cycle of constant abuse, but you see everything going wrong. You see all the bad warning signs of I'm in way over my head, uh, but you, you just refuse to put, to put it down. You know, though that's probably what I could say for me was most likely uh, a lot of childhood trauma. You know, like, like uh, James mentioned uh, earlier, but when I was younger, I was molested by an older female. And I remember being one of the people in these groups at Dynamite, listening to people talk about their stories and then having that revelation to go, wow, that as well happened to me, you know? And that's the beauty of when you go through a program like that, uh, the different people you meet, different walks of life, everything. And then, and then you have this common common goal that brings you together whether they're from different parts of the world or whatever it may be you have this common thing that unites you and then they become your brothers and your sisters and they see you through and james what about you for me i remember it starting like when i was 13 like back then i was just drinking and smoking it was having it was just kind of having fun but like looking back i realized it's like i just had all of these like social anxieties like you know all these I, I was scared to talk to girls or i was it was like a struggle to make friends or something and then i started seeing people who were like smoking or drinking and i was like oh if i do that i can chill with them you know like it's so silly looking back but that was like that was my mentality and i started doing it and it was great you know like all those anxieties would melt away it was like easier <laughs> I wasn't great, but it was easier to talk to girls and these kids, you know, that I wanted to be friends with. And as time progressed, like any time I would get some kind of anxiety or I would get into a fight with my family or something, you know, like I had this magic answer to make me feel better that nobody else figured out, you know? And then as the years go by, like I've seen other drugs and I used to be the kid, I'm never gonna smoke. And then suddenly I'm smoking weed or and cigarettes and it's like, I'm never going to do pills. And like, somebody's like, Oh, try this pill. I'm like, okay. Like all of these 
uh, lines of morals that I put for myself, I just completely discarded them. Um, like 18 to 20, I'm like, you know, I, I was working, I was going to college, but I was also like really starting my opiate addiction uh, was starting then. I was just like buying pills illegally and snorting them and just like this constant nonstop. And like anytime I would get into a bad fight with my family or like my girlfriend broke up with me, all those little things that are really painful and that most people have a more healthy way of managing, I would go on a bender. It's like, oh, you know, F her, I don't need her, all this stupid feelings. And just like, I want to forget as much of my time with her as I can. Like these are literally the thoughts that would go through my head in like a month straight of daily opiates, drinking, smoking weed, like as much as I could. That's how my habit built up, built up, built up. And then like, it's suddenly it's getting expensive. You know, the, these pills are like 25, $30 each and I need like five, six a day, <laughs> you know? Like at this point I was, I was just working to support my habit, you know? Like I would like put away like $20 a month, maybe, maybe if I was lucky, there was no birthdays that month or something. When did you, um, when did you realize that you were addicted and you didn't, you couldn't just cut it off? So there was one day where the dealer wasn't answering. And this was mind you, after like a year, I think I was like 22 after a year of daily use and I couldn't get it. And I started feeling sick and I'm talking to my friend. I'm like, I think I got a cold. He's like, dude, I think you're withdrawing. I was like, nah, that only happens in the movies. That doesn't happen to me. And lo and behold, he was like, oh, there's this, uh, if you get a Suboxone and you take it, you'll feel better. Then we'll know if it's a cold or not. I was like, okay, it's just a cold, dude. That doesn't happen to me. That just happens in the movies. I took the Suboxone, boom, everything's better. I was like, oh, shoot, I'm an addict. I'm an opiate addict. Yeah. But that <laughs> that didn't stop me, you know? <laughs> I just knew I had to, like, get more just in case he doesn't answer tomorrow. Um, and then slowly but surely, uh, I moved on to heroin because it was much cheaper than pills. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was a, I'm a phlebotomist also, so I could shoot myself very easily, sadly. Um, mm. And then as time went on, somewhere around 24, 25, suddenly I can't keep a job and my friends don't want to deal with me and my family hates me. Um, my mom finally kicked me out. I was living with her up to this point and she kicks me out. She locks the door on me. And honestly, that was, that was the best thing she could have ever done for me. That was like the hardest thing for her to do because for years and years of all the lying and stuff, um, you know, I floated around on my own for a few months but I couldn't keep it up, you know, like I ended up sleeping on this uh, addict's couch. And like, after a while, he's like, he looks at me. He's like, you have to get help. I was like, dude, you smoke meth. He's like, yeah, but that's not heroin. You need help. I was like, yo, what the hell? This guy's an addict. He's telling me I'm, I'm too much of an addict for him. Um, and I remember it was winter and I had nowhere to go. And I just happened to have Dynamite's card as a bookmark for me. And um, how'd you find it? So at 18, I did get arrested for smoking weed. And my mom tried to send me there. Um, and I thought it was a joke. Um, but I kept the, the, the card inside of the book I was reading at the time. It just, it was just like serendipitous. Mm -hmm. And um, so yeah, and then like, seven years later, I'm sitting there. And I finally like it hits me. And I just started crying. And I was just like, I can't keep a job none of my friends want to deal with me the last person on this earth who i thought would want to deal with me because he does drugs too doesn't want to deal with me anymore and um i called and they said come on in yeah wow man 
What was that like for you, that initial encounter, when you kind of first went there for the first time? It was, I mean, I also, like, I thought I took Dynamite as a joke in the beginning, just like James M. Um, mm-hmm. I was just kind of, like, biding my time. I was going to get a year sober. I was like, oh, this is just going to lower my tolerance, and then I'm going to go back to my bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that attitude, I would get in a lot of trouble in Dynamite, because they watch you pretty closely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and lo and behold, I even, I even relapsed twice while I was in the program upstate. Um, that's why I don't have my four years yet. Otherwise, I would have had over four years at this point whatever um but slowly but surely just being like almost stuck there because I had nowhere else to go nobody else wanted to deal with me I started seeing the older kids who are sober and they're talking about their lives and then the the counselors are I think 90 percent of them are also in recovery and they would talk about how their lives have changed and then when I would like they let you visit home uh after six months and you would stay in the Brooklyn Center and you would see those guys who you, how do I say this? Once upon a time, they were members that were ahead of me. So they were like my peers that I used to look up to. Rather, they weren't my peers. They were like my older members in recovery who I would look up to. I used to go to them for advice. And now these guys are like back in real life and they're talking about they're working and like they're getting, you know, one of them's getting engaged and oh, their life with their family is so much better. And I wanted all of those things, yeah. you know? I'm like listening to them talk and I was like, yo, I want to get a girlfriend and I want to get my career going and I want my family back in my life. And it's like, and I realized like, oh, I should take this seriously. I should stay sober, you know? And that's when it kind of clicked. And that's when I started getting serious about it. And like, I don't know, I never looked back, you know, it's like, even nowadays, like marijuana is legal and, you know, like I, you know, normal people drink, you know, but I, I don't do that. And it's like, I don't even want to say, cause I can't, I just know that I don't need that to feel good because I learned how to be comfortable with myself. I learned how to enjoy life. Like (laughs) I go outside on a beautiful day and I go on a bike ride with my friend and we're exercising and stuff. And like, life is great. You know, I'm a, I'm a senior in Baruch. I'm getting straight A's. I'm going for some crazy hard major actuarial science. It's like, and I tell people, they're like, whoa, you? And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, oh, you didn't know I was a heroin addict a few years ago. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's just, I, I can't explain the feeling, but it's just, it's great, you know? Yeah, no wonder you want us to get bikes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> let's go bike. It's so beautiful. <laughs> so for both of you guys, what was it like from a therapeutic perspective? Like, what did you guys take away from therapy there? And what was just the process like in general? Um, I guess... What I was able to take away from it was that everyone's human and people suffer and there's some underlining, you know, it's like the onion, you got to peel the onion and then you keep going and you go on and then finally get to the root of certain type things, you know, Yeah. that's what I was able to take away from it more was that we're all people that most of the world didn't really want, you know, no one wants to live in a house where they got to worry about their roommate or their their brothers stealing their stuff when they're gone. So when you come there, and like I said, you have a something that brings you all together, a common, common goal. Um, and you start realizing, like James said, oh wow, you know, oh this this person didn't grow up with a father. Oh, that, that I relate to that, you know. Oh, this person didn't uh, you know, the whatever it may be. Oh, I relate to that, I relate to that, you know, and you start finding this this uh serenity that happens. Whereas you start taking away from the therapy of like 
oh, okay, I can, I can do this. I can change, you know? Um, and, and like James said, also the staff members there, a lot of them were older, either in recovery. Some of them are even previous members of the program. So seeing these people, you know, you start going, wow, you know, I, this can be me. I can do this. You know, so that what I was able to take away from it was that hey, this is just a work in progress. And uh, I want to help any way I can to try to get anyone to get to what we were able to, at least I'm going to say not accomplish, but we were able to come to the realization of, which is these, this idea of recovery, which I, I never, I never thought I could ever click, you know? Yeah. And James, how about you? I learned so much. Um, there was a, there was a huge moment for me. I used to be a, a shirker of responsibility that I, like my mentality used to be nothing is my fault. It's all the world's fault. It's the government's fault. It's his fault. It's her fault. Um, and then one day I was challenged by the, actually the program director. She was like, you're a man. You got to own what's going on around you. Um, I was like, you know what? That's stupid, but I'm going to try. <laughs> so I started taking responsibility for the things that are going on around me. And um, there was like suddenly like a shift in my perspective. It's like, I realized that I, I do have an effect on the world around me and that I, I can change it. And I started being accountable for my actions and not just my actions for, for the actions of my friends and loved ones, you know, like, cause just for example, like if James is doing something stupid, James M like I'm responsible for him. He's my friend. He's my peer, you know, it's like, yo, and I, I'm encouraged to challenge him. Yo, what are you doing? Why are you doing, why are you being stupid right now? Yeah. Um, another thing for me was I learned so much about emotional intelligence. Like I used to be like hardcore, like I want to be like Spock. I want to be like Sherlock, like emotions are for the weak and all that stuff. Um, but I realized how self-destructive that mentality is because as a human being, we do have feelings and we need to be aware of these feelings. And we also need to be aware of the feelings of the people around us because, how do I say it? Once I learn what I'm going through, like what feeling I'm feeling, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I sound like a broken record. Once I learned how to assess the feelings that I was going through, it became not as monumental or rather, I don't know, the best metaphor I can put is like, I, it was easier to digest and it wasn't as debilitating. Um, also made communication with other people much easier. So if just, if a person is like hurting me, I don't, I don't just say, Hey, that's hurting me. I can say, you know what you just did belittled me. And I don't like that. Or I don't know, I'm, I'm making stupid examples, but it, it, it helped me to learn to love myself and to learn those around me much easier. I mean, that's a, there's a constantly growing process. We're all human, you know, it's like the journey of life. Yeah. But um, did you, I think yeah. it's just a question for both of you guys. Did you feel like in terms of the character that you, or the person that you were in the characters that you were developing, right? Did some of that, some of those aspects, like taking responsibility, right? Uh, emotional intelligence, empathizing with other people, maybe even empathizing with yourselves. Do you feel like that kind of helped you build towards self-love? Like becoming those people you wanted to be? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I even before I started using drugs, I had this image that I was like a hippie and I love everybody and I love myself, but it, it was all a lie. It was all a lie. But now as I'm learning these things, like I'm realizing I'm, I'm doing it better, I think. And every day it's like, I'm kind of, I'm on this journey of how can I love myself more and how can I love the people around me more? Just, just as a dumb example, um, a, a buddy sort of 
who did not finish the program, but I was like, we were very close uh, for a while. He died last Sunday. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, it's so sad. Dude overdosed on vacation. And um, I kind of, you know, I was sad. And then I was like, oh, what lesson can I learn from this? And it was kind of like to cherish the moments that you have with your friends and family because it could be gone because his death was sudden and avoidable. And like, you never know, you know, like I can, might never see you guys again, God forbid, you know? So that's why the time that we do have with each other, I try to make sure that I relish it to the, as much as I possibly can. Yeah. Hey, and James, what about you in terms of what character and your self-concept? How did that change? Um, I became the, the man I always knew I would become. I just didn't know how to get there. I was, like I said, I was suffering through so much drug addiction and and it would eventually I made it to who I knew I was going to be uh, which is dependable reliable uh, honest articulate uh, you know I, I can these were all things I knew I had I was just it was shrouding in depression and drug use that I couldn't shine you know and the thing that James mentions of of people passing away from addiction you know, that's why it's, it's such a prevalent issue with every family in America to, to Israel, we mentioned before, you know, it's all over the globe, uh, addiction. And that's why what I do with, with the band is I wanted to create a type of outlet to help people that are suffering an addiction to sort of bring them along and say, look, I did it and I can help you. How can I be of assistance? Uh, a lot of this, after you get clean, it becomes about how can you help the next man or woman get what you got? And it's all about giving back and trying. So what I ended up doing is I took what Dynamite did and I tried to apply it in a real life situations that I felt I could be of assistance to, which would be with music. And that's why I developed the recovery band, which all the members of the band are in recovery and all of them are from Dynamite. Uh, so we tried to have an outreach to the community to help them get help, you know? Yeah. I've even, the reason I wanted to do this so badly is because there's a huge stigma about drug addiction, that it's like that person is sick and tainted and they're basically done for life. You know, they're going to die and just, we can forget about him. Just forget about him. He's going to die. But that's, that's not true. There's help. There is help. And also, a very important aspect is that asking for help is not a sign of weakness. In fact, I, I found that asking for help is a sign of strength because you realize that you've, re you've hit a boundary and that the boundary is overcomable with help, with assistance, and you want to overcome that boundary. That's so, so important. So I really, you know, if anybody who's listening to this is struggling or knows somebody who's struggling, like, it's okay. You know, there's help. Like, things will be okay if you do the right things to fix it do you guys feel like since you guys sort of are i mean i know you guys are technically still in recovery like it doesn't technically end but since you guys are like you could say success stories in, 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 a, in a way of speaking right do you feel like because you guys did it other people can do it too like that attitude of like you know how entrenched you know you guys were in in that feeling of addiction and keep, you know, going back to it, uh, pulling away, going back, pulling away, going back. And 
I know a lot of people deal with that and they also think like it's impossible. And that's why like what you just said is so important. But um, do you feel like just like anyone, if they really try, if they, if they ask for help, if, if they go to the right place, they, it's possible for them to get over their addiction? I'd say absolutely. But it's, it's about, it's, an, it's a per person individual choice. Because when I was going into this, I took it as a joke. But there was a point in me or a purpose in me that, that knew at the end of the day, I have to give this up. I have to put this down. So some people, they don't get this their whole lives. It's a per person basis mm -hmm. because at, it's all individuals and the choices to finally say, I'm done living this life. And that's when it really clicks. The most important thing I ever had someone ask me uh, was when I was younger and uh, they were trying to get me to a different program that wasn't dynamite. And he asked me, he said, are you, are you done getting high? And I remember I looked down and I just looked at, I said, no, I'm not. And that was probably the honest I've ever been at that point. Cause I was in my addiction, but I remember looking at him and saying, I'm not. And then eventually that's when I, I started saying, once I saw everything going downhill, losing everything, family, friends, opportunities, I, I said, I need to do this for me. Do you guys feel like, um, I, I noticed this like in my experience, but maybe you guys think different, um, that people have to sort of hit a bottom in order to come to that realization you're talking about or it's you probably it might not be in everybody in every case where somebody needs to hit a bottom it, maybe they have some kind of oh i can see your face already like i don't oh, you need a bottom yeah i don't i actually i quite the opposite i don't believe in a bottom because like uh, there i think there's a saying like every bottom has a trap hole in it to the next bottom like i don't even like i used to say like death is the bottom but like it's too late then but it's like i don't know it's like a i've been it's sort of a spiritual disease. So I don't even know if that's the bottom. It's once a person decides to be like completely, completely honest with themselves that they need help or that they have a problem and they have to be completely ready to change everything if need be, then they can get help. Um, until then, like it's, it's not doable. Like I, I, one of my closest friends, he was smoking crack since he was 11 years old wow. with his dad you know 11 or 12 i forget and you know that's he grew up that's all he knew that was his whole life you know but he went to dynamite and he changed his life and today you know he works he's got a girl he's got a car he's got the watch he's got the phone he's thinking about buying a house to flip it or to open a business like he, he saw that there's more to life but that went with a complete change in who he is yeah. you know i'm not the same person i was when i started doing the, when i started my recovery you know, and that's kind of the key is like, you have to be honest and you have to be ready to change because like, while you're like, ah, you know, I could still, I could still do a little bit of drugs on the weekend or, you know, I don't have to, I'm good. I just got to tweak a few little things. Like that's not the, the, the attitude for getting sober. And that's the thing that prevents people from sobering up that, that very attitude. Yeah. I, I agree with James on that, that there's always another bottom that the, they say, like he said, the analogy with the trap door, mm -hmm. there's always another bottom, you know, mm -hmm. you just hope that you can reach someone and pull them out before they get the final coffin, you know?
But I, I agree with that. There's always another bottom. Yeah, and then how does somebody not feel like life is predetermined then, right? Especially if you're in that situation where your dad is smoking crack with you, right? Like, how do you not feel that your destiny in that case has been kind of etched for you or set in stone? He probably did. Yeah. He probably did. But then he saw that there's another way. He met people who were telling him there's another way. And you're seeing that there's another way. So you start to believe there's another way. You know that you have to do something else. So it's like, it kind of just like, you know, he made the decision. I talk to this guy all the time. He's like, yo, I made the decision to sober up. And I went and I did it, you know, and I followed the rules and I changed and I grew and I was honest. And, you know, and he's the man he is today because of what happened to him. And same for me, you know. I, I think your environment can make you or mold you, but your environment doesn't have to make you. You know, like your environment can mold you into the person you are, but your environment doesn't have to make you your environment. You know? Yeah, I like that. And so, wow. And, and so I guess, what do you guys, what do you think that are uh, some of sort of the major barriers, right? That, so let's say if you're making this decision, right? Both of you agreed, okay, you know, we're kind of going on this road. We realize, you know, that life isn't kind of, you know, let's say uh, the life that I wanted isn't this, right? Like this isn't what I want my future to look like. What are some of the barriers that could kind of get you to backtrack and then to go back with your, you know, let's say old habits or, you know, whatever it is, like old sort of conceptions of life or uh, kind of old ways of thinking about what's good for you or what's best for you? So for me personally, something that's like dangerous for me is if I stray too far from my peers in recovery, mm -hmm. like if I don't see them for way too long, and I don't make a meeting, uh, like an AA meeting or a dynamite group for way too long or any of that. And then I start to, I start to have the thoughts to start playing in my head. It's like, oh, it's okay if you like drink a little bit. It's okay if you smoke a little bit. It's okay if you like do a little bit of Coke. You know, those thoughts still play with me. Um, but as long, as long as I stay in the loop, as long as I, you know, read like some a literature or I call James or I hang out with James and it's like we don't have to sit and talk about like this grief stuff you know like we just had a great uh, memorial day dinner you know we hung out and we played cards and we just laughed and we made a great memory and we took pictures you know like that's what helps me stay grounded is that I, I stay connected with my peers and like I'm there for them and I know they're there for me. Like, I know if I, if I woke up at 3 a.m. and I had something bad going on, and I called James, like, he would answer and be like, yo, let's talk, you know? Yeah, James, how about you? What do you think is something that could have made you backtrack? Uh, I guess something that would make me backtrack would be when I realized that I'm not trying to do my service to mm -hmm. covered community, I guess. Uh, when I realized that I am not helping, I mean, We've had people message us saying, you know, oh, I'm suffering uh, recently with a woman with her child. Uh, and I did everything I could to, to try to help. I called her, then followed up with her, gave her all the information, told her about my story. So I consistently do that on a basis, but I also created something that's personal to me that I have the ability to do that, you know. We're very active in a lot of communities online, whether it's recovery communities or mental health uh, communities, whether through Facebook or Reddit or any of these other things. So I stay active by trying to spread this message that there is someone out there and I get it and I understand it and I just want to listen. I'm just going to hear, I'm going to try my best to, because I, I remember being, hitting the same wall over and over 
and over and over. Mm-hmm. And I know that if there was someone like me that could just wouldn't judge me, would just say, I just want to listen. What's what's going on? And, and maybe how could I help? You know, I, I would have been more receptive to it. Do you guys um, at the at the program over there, have you seen like a lot of examples of success? Uh, I know you guys said that there were uh, some seniors, some counselors there were 90 percent of the people there uh, were people who had success stories. But like just from general, from experience, from all the people who go there out of the people who don't maybe make it through the program all the way. Do you guys see like enough success to be like, OK, this is still a great place to to go and to be at and to, you know, try the program out there? Yeah. I mean, I'm not in touch with every single person I've ever seen, but most of the people who like finish the program and stick to the ideals and the philosophy that we were learned, that we were taught, they're doing great. You know, I mean, there's also plenty of people who finish the program, but like they didn't listen, they lied their way through and, you know, now they're getting messed up, you know, and simultaneously there's plenty of people who didn't finish the program who, you know, are messing up are dead um and then you know there's like one or two that they're doing okay you know like do i believe that they're good good it's like sometimes a person looks good on the outside but they're not good on the inside you know and um i'm not i don't want to judge anybody but it to my eyes it looks like the the people who didn't finish who just like completely discard everything they were taught even though they were doing heroin two three years ago like they're not in good shape yeah what would you guys say are some of the kind of, uh, I guess, biggest myths of addiction, right? What are sort of the most common misconceptions about it? I don't believe once an addict, always an addict. Mm-hmm. That's a I big one. I don't believe that. That is, uh, I, I hear that a lot and I, I get it. I get the idea. I think once an addict always maybe have some sense of compulsive behavior into some things, you know, but I don't believe oh, once an addict, always an addict. Uh, I, I don't believe in that stigma that surrounds the drug community or the uh, recovery community. I don't, I don't believe in that. Mm-hmm. James, how yeah, about you? What do you think? That's, that's the, the key one, you know, because there's, like I said, I said it 10 times, I think today that like, you know, people don't believe like once a person is doing drugs, they don't believe that that person can ever accomplish anything in their lives. Right. You know, and it's like the success stories, it's a shame because the success stories are too, ashamed to talk about their past and be like look i made it you know that's another reason i'm bringing up again why it was so important for me to come on here is like you know i'm doing it i mean look i i'm still basically in early recovery you know four years in the grand scheme of things like isn't that long because i was getting high for like 15 16 years you know Mm -hmm. um but that's why you don't hear about the success stories that's why that myth exists i once an addict always an addict because there's not enough people who are going I was addicted and now I'm good. And this is what I do to do it. There's not enough people like that. And that's, that's why that myth prevails. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when we even talk about like character change or personality change, often people think, Oh, well, if you're like this person, that's the person that you were born as, you know, it's kind of mm-hmm. an aid. That's the person that you're always going to be. Right. It's like, no matter what, no matter what influences come from the environment. Right. I mean, maybe to some extent they could change your character, but it's never going to be anything significant. So I think like, that's what the uh, once an addict is always an addict kind of motto is based on, on the fact that characters don't change. In fact, the very first line of the dynamite philosophy is that every man makes his own destiny. All right. Like literally the first line. And we would say it every day. 
<laughs> yeah. And by the way, what did it feel like for you to actually like finally take responsibility? Well, whatever, not to kind of paint it in black and white terms. I'm sure you took responsibility for some things, but for like both of you guys, right? What did it feel like to actually see you that, you know, you actually have an effect on the world and in turn the world has an effect on you. And then you could kind of develop these different traits. I think it's a beautiful thing. Uh, when I realized, I mean, when I had people reaching out to me to say, hey, I'm struggling through addiction, I need help. And I said, all right, well, maybe let me take the day off. I'll come meet up with you and uh, we'll have a conversation. We'll see where it takes us. It's a beautiful, because someone that I know personally is, is now I brought him to the program and he's there over a year now, you know, but having that effect on the environment, that is everything from getting clean to being the person I am. That is everything I ever wanted to do was to have an effect positively to help people. And I'm blessed that today I can, I can say that I'm actively doing that. Yeah. Well, James, how about you? Before I could just, you know, anything that's going bad in my life, it wasn't my fault. You know, it's like, oh, I don't have a job. It's like, cause the employers suck. I don't have a, you know, girlfriend because all the girls suck, you know, like, that was very, very easy to just like, it's not my fault. But then when I started taking responsibility and I started looking at, oh, what can I do better? Like suddenly, like life is more within my hands. You know, before it's like, oh, bad things are gonna be constantly happening to me because it's never my fault and life sucks. Yeah. But, you know, like now that I, I, I have a more feeling that I own my life and I own what goes on around me and I own the results of my actions, at least to an extent. You know? right, right, right. I can't control the stock market. Um, not yet. But, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's, I, I feel like more of a man almost, I don't want to sound sexist or anything, but I feel like I, I'm a mature adult who controls his environment. And if there's something unpleasant in my environment, I can get rid of it. And if there's a pleasant thing in my, that I want to add to my environment, I'm capable of doing that. Yeah, man. And I mean, do all of you guys notice that fatalism like really fucking sucks? Because if you actually don't create good things in your life, the bad shit's going to happen anyway. That's a like fact. The, yes, right? It's like you can't avoid any of that shit. It's like you're going to suffer and die. But if you don't create some joy within that, that's literally going to be your entire life. That's a fact. Exactly. And whatever you're looking for, that's what you're going to find. You know, like yeah. if you're looking for excuses, you're looking for like things going bad. That's what you're going to find. If you're yeah, looking for good stuff and joy. Mm hmm. Wait, we can curse. You guys didn't tell me that in the beginning. Yeah, bro. You can curse all you want. Yo, what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> <laughs> but look at it like this. It's probably better that you don't because if you do, then we're going to have to put the E sign on for explicit and you're probably better off with getting a wife. Yeah, off. children can't watch anymore. Yeah. But I'm kidding. We don't. You started it, Leon. I was so good. I kept my clean, mouth clean and everything. <laughs> but, but yeah, essentially, you guys decided to change cause and effect, right? Instead of being at the effect of everything, you decided to be you know, at the cause, you, you decided to impact the environment instead of let the environment impact you. And then also like Leon, like you just said, the environment's gonna do what the environment's gonna do. So you have to sort of control or as best you can control your reaction to the environment or mm -hmm. even how proactive you are instead of reacting, you, you're, mm -hmm. you're, you're doing things, you know. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and it's like, and it's like, yeah, what's, the point, what's the point of fatalism anyway, right? Just say like, okay, nothing's my fault. It's like, how is that helpful? Okay, so now you're just sort of like this thing or, you know, whatever you want to call it, like, you know, this blob of like muscles and joints and whatever else, and you're hurled through space, right? You're constantly suffering and then you die. Great. 
We used to say you're like a fart in the wind. Wherever yeah, right? the wind goes, that's where you go. Yeah, yeah. that's it. <laughs> you're just, you're sort of, yeah. You're kind of like, oh, uh, what's the word? Uh, you're sort of tossed about on this ship, on this mm -hmm. ocean, right? Mm -hmm. Great. Like, what a way to look at the world. It's like, all right, what do you do with that information now? Mm -hmm. It's useless. It's just yeah. a way to get, uh, it's a way to justify your sadness <laughs> and your yeah. misery. Yeah. I don't know. What were you going to say? A question. Yeah. So uh, for you guys, was it more helpful that you were in a, a community of people and you saw examples of success and that's sort of what was like the main anchor for you to change or was it also that like while you were there you learn like these these tech like for example let's say you learn about something like projection let's say you know that whatever you're feeling you're going to put out onto the environment right and then sometimes it's not you know that's not what's actually happening it's sort of your own feelings or like just in general emotional intelligence like you know that like um, maybe, maybe what that person is saying isn't meant to offend you or something like that. Maybe it's just like a regular comment and maybe you're taking it a certain way or, or whatever, like, uh, that's just examples, but like, is it, was it like little techniques and understandings and philosophies that sort of helped to get you to make the change or was it more like being in a community of people or is it a little bit of both or something? Uh, I would I would say it's most likely a little bit of both, but for me, it was really the community. It was seeing the staff members that were once members sitting in my seat, dealing with the same addictions that I was, uh, telling me, "Look, you could do this," you know. And it doesn't happen in a day, but you can do this. And I, that's why I think Dynamite is a beautifully structured program for anyone that is suffering an addiction because it, they have an immaculate way with how their whole program is structured. Yeah, that's the magic of the therapeutic community model because like the staff, you know, are like at the, they're like, we call them older. People who are ahead of you in the program, we call them older, just in case I say that. So you don't think people are actually older than me, mm -hmm. but the, the staff and the older members um, who are ahead of you in the program, they've learned more things and it's kind of their job to give back to you and so that they can progress forward. And, you know, like I made relationships with these people, you know, like when I first came in, like I was fresh off the streets and I had like three main guys who were like always there for me. They would tell me the rules. They would tell me, you know, they would talk to me about whatever's going on. And then like, but they were far, far ahead of me in the program. So like when I was like halfway through my upstate treatment, these guys were already in Brooklyn and they were already like working or whatever. And I would, when I would come visit Brooklyn, I would see them and like, my God, you guys have grown so much. You guys are working. Oh, you got a girlfriend, dude. And it's like, yo, I want that. I want that. And that's kind of, that's, that's the whole magic of the therapeutic community model is like you, you, the, the, the older guys, they give you a hand up and also they're supposed to inspire you to keep going forward, to keep doing more. Awesome. Wow. All right. So. I know that, yeah, I know we were to say, Leon, but before, maybe one more question. I wait, actually, wait, actually, actually wait, 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 before you ask that question, James, read us the stats. Read us the stats? Get us all the stats, all the stats on the program. <laughs> okay, okay, <laughs> that's a great idea. Okay, yeah, so Dynamite Youth, Dynamite Youth Center, one more time, the phone number is 718-376-7923. We're located on Avenue O in Coney Island. You can call, you can schedule a walk-in. Um, we service adolescents and young adults ages 16 to 25 long-term residential treatment. It could be up to 12 months, could be up to three years. As long as you need, we are there for you. Our upstate facility, we got a hundred beautiful acres. We've been around for 50 <laughs> years. It's community-based, nonprofit. Um, it's a long-term treatment, which is so important, which we've talked about at great length. Um, 
in this program, in this uh, show. Oh yeah, and then the community residences in Brooklyn, right off the Belt Parkway. Oh, if you don't have your high school education, they get you the GED and there's also a Restart Academy. If you need to get your high school, if you're young enough to get your high school diploma, you can get it. There's legal advocacy work if you need, if you have some kind of felonies or court cases that you need taken care of, we got you. <laughs> 73% of the members that come in are using some kind of opiate heroin or oxys or some kind of prescription pills. 30% uh, are on stimulants and benzodiazepines such as Xanax. Um, and we service all five boroughs, Long Island, upstate. Um, we've had guys come in from Colorado. We have one guy from California. Um, and <laughs> most importantly, nobody, nobody, nobody is turned away due to the inability to pay, nobody. Awesome. <laughs> 718-376-7923. All right, go for it, Alan. All right, so we can scratch that. That's actually a pretty good way to end off. Yeah, uh, so, I think so. So, so instead, um, uh, uh, James uh, Moreno, if I uh, wanted to like uh, follow your uh, music, uh, I think you have a website. Uh, what, what's that uh, for you? So the website is OceansideMusicNow.com. Uh, and that's They're also great. Instagram handle. Uh, Facebook, if you just type in Oceanside Music Now, all one word, Instagram, or you visit our URL, uh, you can find the story of the band, how we all came together. We had a staff member that was part of Dynamite. Actually, we recorded the drums to our released EPs now while I was inpatient in the program. I had recording oh, wow. equipment that I was able to actually use while I was there. And uh, that's how I made uh, the two EPs we have released now, which is Minor Setback and Major Comeback. Wow. That's great. Check it out. All right, guys. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having us. It was amazing. Awesome. Yeah, right. And it. to the audience, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Thanks so much for watching and see you guys next time.